Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. I'm your host, Joe Schunkweiler, a physician and former health tech executive now supporting startups and investors at Amazon Web Services. Today, I welcome Dr. Suchi Saria to the podcast. Dr. Saria is the John C. Malone Assistant Professor at Johns Hopkins University, where she directs the Machine Learning and Healthcare Lab. She is also the CEO and founder of Bayesian Health, a company bringing AI to the bedside to deliver accurate and actionable clinical signals. She shares her thoughts on the role of machine learning to derive insights from reams of healthcare data and how leading in academia differs from running a venture-backed startup. Enjoy. Dr. Suchi Saria, CEO of Bayesian Health. Thanks for joining us today. Always fun to talk to you, Joe. I would love to hear your journey because it's a particularly interesting one in the space. So can you, can you walk us through how you got here today? Yeah, um, I don't know how far back you want to go. I grew up in India. Uh, I grew up in a tiny place in India, in fact. Um, got interested in machine learning and AI very early. Grew up in a family full of like older siblings who, you know, and in an environment where girls didn't do tech. Mm. And of all things, I end up in uh, not only in tech, but interested in machine learning and AI in particular. Um, very early got a chance to train with some really good people in the field, luminaries. And, you know, when you do things that are uh, interesting and exciting as a um, young person, you get outsized opportunities because people notice and then they give you more opportunities. And long story short, I think at this point, I've been in the field in MLAI far before it was exciting to be in it for almost 20 years now, really pushing kind of, um, you know, what's possible with this technology, the algorithmic front uh, over the last five to 10 years, special interest in particular, and like, what is it really going to take to move AI in the real world? in safety critical domains, like high stakes domain, like healthcare, you know, where it's like costly to be wrong, the data ultra, ultra messy. And how do you bring all these data sets together to try to um, draw inferences from it that users will trust? So that's sort of more on the IML side. Um, I actually grew up not at all being interested in medicine and biology. In fact, it was one of the fields that I was not, you know, it wasn't well taught where I grew up. And, I remember before 10th board exams, I almost cried because uh, I didn't want to take the uh, exam for biology. And um, the and I was sort of very much like a fat, you know, physics, math, nerd, mm. uh, robotics, algorithms. And it was actually during my time at Stanford um, where uh, basically I, uh, it was with Daphne Kohler, uh, Anna Penn. Anna Penn is a neonatologist we got exposed to, you know, this is 2007, eight, like Stanford was implementing Cerner in its children's hospital. And Anna said, well, we have all this data we're collecting on our premature babies. These babies are at risk for major complications. I did a lot of work on time series data. So her natural question was, shouldn't we be able to approach this, you know, look at data from these babies to identify babies at risk for complications. And that was my first introduction to medicine and biology, you know, um, from the point of view of someone who, you know, like I was blown away to discover that they were collecting all this data and no one ever did anything with it. That it was just actually right. getting collected and thrown away 48 hours later because it was too much data to store at the time. 
And so I started working on that uh, two, two and a half years, you know, discovered that big thick book in neonatology to start learning about neonatology and kind of like several discoveries. Like we made some really exciting discoveries. They were on the front page of science translational medicine on science, showing how you could use MLAI to identify babies at risk for complications early. Started kind of realizing how far apart the two worlds were. Like MLAI was never designed with healthcare data sets in mind and healthcare, you know, really didn't, even though it was so data rich, we did not have any stack or processes for leveraging this data in our daily decision-making. From there on, basically I got hooked, um, almost too hooked. Um, <laughs> I spent, unfortunately for my husband, probably like the vast majority of my waking moments thinking about this. Uh, we ended up, I ended up getting recruited to the East Coast, uh, Hopkins, joined here as a professor uh, between engineering and public health, started a lab, then became a big center. Uh, you know, in the last 10, 12 years, probably have worked with every service line um, in kind of imagining how, you know, designed right, right? Like, think of it as like, we used to build bridges with iron. Now we have steel. Right. New things are possible. What does that mean? So just both pushing the frontier of what's possible in terms of algorithmically with the data, but then also, um, you know, how do we use it? And you'd think that'd be all, but uh, for me, I was fascinated by what's possible. And then amidst all this, I unfortunately, um, you know, lost my nephew to sepsis. And that was just a crushing, you know, moment for me, my family. Like, I remember distinctly, I was sitting in Baltimore. Uh, my mom calls me and I had written papers. Like right. literally I had written one of the earliest papers that showed you could integrate diverse data to identify sepsis early. And she calls me and they're like, so you should be able to like, can you help us? And I sat there thinking, I'm just a hoity-toity researcher, basically. Like, you know, my, these tools, like I know a lot about what's state-of-the-art, but state-of-the-art is not what's at the bedside. Right. And so I think it was really that moment when I started realizing, um, you know, and I, I, from being at three large health systems, I've often been on the other side of evaluations, kind of hearing a lot of marketing gizmo around like, um, you know, yeah, I can do this, yeah, I can do that. But what I was realizing is, you know, the technology has matured a great deal. There's a lot we can do with it. It is actually incredible how many of the pieces now exist to actually save lives today. Like we're, send, we're, like we're always talking about these very high flung, like, you know, um, exploring asteroid mining. Yet to me, it's crazy that in 2021, we are losing patients today that we could have prevented if we had used the data more intelligently and point of care to help our providers. And so I think it's really that when I started realizing I needed one more job and that one more job was being, um, you know, the CEO of Bayesian. And so I spun it out, found incredibly credible people who wanted to go on this mission with me. It's a hard mission, but it's an important mission. It needs to happen. And, you know, uh, just have been at it uh, since. What does the <clears throat> private sector startup world offer uh, in terms of additional opportunity uh, that you couldn't do from, you know, someplace as uh, esteemed as, as, as Johns Hopkins from your current position? Oh, great question. Um, one thing that's really interesting is in academia, we're very, very good at taking really hard problems and pushing the frontier to show what's possible. 
But when you go into the real world, you have to not just show what's possible with a Rube Goldberg machine, like, you know, this esoteric things, you have to scale it. And when you're scaling it, you have to think of, you know, um, repeatability, um, robustness, reliability, design, right. um, maintenance, margins, all that, which is really important to actually take an idea that is working to, to, you know, to really think about. So that's one very important discipline. The second thing is more particular to MLAI. Now, turns out there are actually now a large number of clinical areas and applications where you can take the data and you really could improve outcomes, reduce financial waste, bring, you know, like the quadruple emission of healthcare, like making it impossible for our providers to practice with lower burnout, administratively giving the right level of care and getting rewarded for it. Like all of that is possible. But the reality of what I saw was many of these researchers were basically sitting in labs where you have, um, you know, like people who understand algorithms, but algorithms are just a starting point. You need this to be within workflow. You need this to be operationalized. You need to think hard about design. You need right. to think hard about measurement. What is getting measured? How do you go from one site to another? How do you build algorithms that transport? In fact, a lot of my research actually then got motivated by going out in the real world, observing all the gaps that you see when you go out in the real world. And most academic labs are not set up to make things work in the real world. They're very set up to explore the frontier of the hard problems would not necessarily scale it. So it's the going out in the real world that I really wanted to accelerate. And to do that well, like at Bayesian, we've had to, I probably work with people from over nine disciplines. Right. At, and when I say nine disciplines, I don't mean nine clinical disciplines. I really mean nine totally different disciplines from human factors engineering to product to design to client success to systems engineering data science, marketing, messaging, all that matters. And so I think it's the ability to assemble A plus players across the board that care about end-to-end -end success. And they're all united in one single mission, which is helping us bring data to life to empower frontline providers to improve outcomes, right? And they're united in one big mission. They're not here because they wanna be a first author paper or a last author paper. They're here because they together wanna to make this happen. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, that's, you know, it, it makes total sense. And we, in, in my previous life in uh, the clinical medicine and in general surgery, um, we always saw that balance of people who wanted to do cutting edge, you know, high profile research, but also had to do something like a surgical subspecialty where there's nowhere to hide. You know, like you either, you have the outcomes or you don't. And it's, I, it's the same. I actually never thought of it that way on the startup side or in the, the private sector uh, business side, where, as you said, like you have to build a product that people use, like you can't yeah. grant, you know, that, that, um, that builds that up, right? Like you raise money and you have runway and all those things, but it's not, you know, it's literally non-academic, you know, to, to do it. But, um, but also what an advantage to have that deep expertise in, in this technology and access to, great folks who are thinking deeply about this because you need both, you know, to, to really make it work. Absolutely. And one of the biggest gaps I saw was how much of what in, in fact, in building Bayesian, we've taken a totally flip playbook than what a typical digital health startup does. 
we raised funding from incredibly credible people who were just, you know, who've just been fabulous partners. They understand the, the scaling up part. They understand the AI. They're credible AI researchers themselves, but have built billion dollar plus companies. They understand moving deep uh, tech into the real world. And so we brought people together. We raised funding. We stayed in stealth. Mm-hmm. We did not go and start creating noise, marketing decks. We actually stayed in stealth with this very strong belief that if you look at other aspects of medicine, you know, like COVID, even for COVID vaccines, right? Like there's a strong principled dissemination infrastructure where you first come up with the idea, then you turn into, you know, it's a molecule, you test it, right? you develop it, you turn it into a prototype, then you do studies where you put it into workflow, you get people to take it, you do prospective studies to see if it's working, you test various aspects of it. And it's only once you've established evidence, high quality evidence that you then go out and start my whole point of fundraising with the people I did was for them to take a long view. Like this is Mm -hmm. not a question of like whether, it's a question of when this is happening. To us to succeed, it's gonna be taking the long view and doing it right. And doing it right meant patience. And you know, it, it was, and it's not easy as a you know commercially oriented company to be in stealth, you know, because it's right. really when on LinkedIn everybody's making noise all day long to get distracted. But for us, it was all about this is what's necessary. And so you know, we did we built a platform, we deployed, we studied, we came out of stealth with some really cool groundbreaking results for the field, and we have several more in the works that I'm pretty excited about. That's going to come down the line. Uh, and and that's really exciting. And we're actually seeing when we're talking to health system leaders, we're seeing a very different kind of reaction when they see us do this. So it's been fun. How did you approach building a team in stealth mode like that? Um, so actually, I'd like two parts. One, um, as a first time founder, um, how did you approach building that team? And then how did your investors align with that? Um, being in stealth, really validating the solution, taking that patient measured approach, and then going aggressively to market it. Yeah. So I think uh, one thing I realized is just because you're in stealth doesn't mean you can't talk to people. So that's helpful. And then the second thing is um, it really did help that I have a long track record in the field, right? So, um, you know, um, personally, I'm a known quantity. So from that point of view, there were many people who had read my papers, many people who knew of our research. And so it was possible for us to recruit very high quality talent, um, even in, in stealth. Well, not, I have to say, I was making the job harder for myself because I've definitely noticed, you know, we came out of stealth maybe 16, 17 weeks ago and just the difference in terms of like inbounds and reception we're getting, you know, once the story is out there, it's just easier for people to hear. So it's definitely a much, much harder task. Uh, but, you know, as a first time founder, when you don't know any better, you do a ton of things that you might not have known to do otherwise. Right. And I, me, it felt like I was pretty married to the idea of like, uh, you know, data and evidence over uh, marketing. So it felt important to get that right. And honestly, I actually think the fact that we had the time, we were able to learn things that we wouldn't take the time to learn because we'd be in a rush if we were out there. So I'll give you as an example, like one of the results we came out of stealth with was like a very beautiful five-site study where we showed 
deployed over, we have data, uh, like over two plus years now, almost three years, uh, data showing very high frontline adoption. So like 4,000 plus mm -hmm. providers using our tool. Um, you know, I, you know, as a physician, like uh, most CDS tools get something like 10, 12, 15, I think very large vendors. When you look at the aggregate number, something like 9% adoption is what I've heard from, from metrics. And these are when many of the times they, the, the way they force you to use it is by making it mandatory. Right. In our tool, everything was designed in a way I would often say, I want to bring back the joy of practicing medicine. I want them to like it. I don't want them to do it because I'm forcing them to do it. And so it was not mandatory. It was optional. They can come in, they click. And we showed basically in our study, it was sustained over a two and a half year period, 89% adoption engagement. That's a very, you know, and you can't get outcomes if you don't have adoption. Of course, there are lots of other metrics we talk about, like sensitivity, specificity, early detection, very rigorous trials measuring outcomes. But, but that's one example of something where, you know, it took us two and a half years of like, you know, tons of research leading up to it and then a long trial because it's much easier to have a small team, three months, do a little quick and done study from five people you engage just for that trial. And then you think, oh, this looks good. And the reality is none of those two tools scale. And so for us to be able to be patient in doing this, because it's foundational, right? We can, we do this well, we, it's easy to scale to other, other places. Right. And what I love about that is, uh, as you know, physicians are one of the toughest user bases. And, um, but I would say the flip side of that is they're so discerning in general across specialties that if you make, if you give them an edge, in what they're doing and taking care of patients at driving better outcomes, you can't stop them from using it. So it's, you have to literally legislate to get them to take up new technology in the case of something like an EMR. But if it's something that they see value in, they will clamor for it internally and drive that adoption. So your 90% number is definitely not lost on me or anybody that's seen what uptake looks like in anything that's optional. Um, and you know, as I've spent a little bit of time on the more consumer app side, as I transitioned out of clinical medicine in the policy world, and you realize what the churn rates are like for even the best, and this is consumer technology, where they're measured more rigorously on the UI, UX. So um, yeah, that 90% is is definitely a, an impactful number. Um, I'm, I'm curious, what's the reception been like? Um, as you've gone out and now that you're out of stealth, you're talking to more folks, you're driving growth. Um, like what are you hearing back from, from your targets? I've been actually, um, very, um, I've been very excited by, you know, what I'm seeing is a turn of events that's happened this year. So the first most important is, you know, I'll start with health systems because this is just true of all stakeholders, payers and pharma, but let me just start with like health systems, right? Where the vast majority of care delivery takes place, which is really the, the core rubric of healthcare. At the end of the day, all said and done, you have to come back to that moment in time where patients and physicians interact and a decision gets made about what to do. And that moment drives, that's the fundamental building block of all of healthcare, if you will. Right. And when I'm looking at health systems, like, what I see is some really interesting market trends happening. So the first is they've all finished implementing DMR, right? Like they, they were sort of like for four, five, six years, very busy 
getting the EMR set up, getting used to the EMR, getting the EMR implemented. So now they're really surfacing up and are at a place where they've invested gobs and gobs of money in a infrastructure layer that allows them to have digitized data, have digitized interactions. And now naturally the next question is, well, now that the data exists, there's opportunity to use the data. The second thing I'm seeing is people have attempted to build tools. They have internal teams where they've attempted to build tools or use tools that are coming out of you know, EMR vendors. And what they're realizing is um, there's lots of possibility. There's lots you can do with it, but it's actually much harder than it looks. That's an important realization because when you're starting, first is like awareness, right? Like there's a lot you can do. Then the next part is building up your internal teams and realizing it's actually harder than it looks. Like I have now multiple collaborations where essentially these were experts who run labs. I would have called my peers, but they know from their own internal experience, like, you know, Bayesian has like nine different disciplines that come together. It's just really hard for an academic lab to have that level of scope. You know, experience. Yeah. So, so naturally, as a result, what I'm seeing is they're coming out of COVID. They're excited to now do more with the data. They understand. Um, and then one very big uh, trend that's happened this year is the focus on evaluations. When we came out of stealth mode, one of the biggest discoveries, I think, this year that's been um, brought to light is, you know, when you look at most tools that are like hundreds of hospitals are deploying tools, but there are no studies evaluating many of these tools. There's nothing measuring if these work. And as a result, um, you know, frontline users are unhappy because they don't know if it works. They don't have any rubric for measurement. They don't have the right people who can do these measurements. They don't have the right people who can understand if something is working or not working. And this year, some pivotal studies came out. There was a beautiful study in Annals of Internal Medicine that came out that talked about um, an existing tool for sepsis that many people were using but weren't well evaluated, you know, had never been evaluated and they actually right. showed it doesn't work. So where I'm going with this is like, to me, what's important is not saying, you know, um, this one is better than this one, but it's the discipline. Because once we get the right discipline, we'll get to the right places. And this year, what I'm also seeing is awareness, discipline, where now people are really thinking hard about evaluation. How do I understand um, how to evaluate these tools? How do I know it's working? Because now, once we have the infrastructure, high quality tools that are in workflow that are working, ways to evaluate what is and isn't working, we can really close the loop and do a learning system, right? That's what we need to really move this data to light. And that's sort of what we've been up to at Bayesian. And that's, you know, what I've been working to build. And, you know, we're seeing very exciting reception. We, you know, just announced this beautiful deal with uh, LiveBridge Health, particularly excited about working with them because they've actually implemented tools in the past they know what the struggles are. They've actually, they like one of their biggest struggles was physician adoption. They, right. they've, they've implemented tools, but not succeeded in getting any physician adoption. And so they were very excited by our studies showing the ability to get physician adoption. Um, so that's among, um, so yeah, so I think high level, very excited about where timing is from a market perspective. I think people are uh, looking to do more with the data, the infrastructure and uh, the tools are there now. And it's a matter of like, discipline and partnering with the right people to make it happen. And it, it sounds like you haven't, um, it sounds like you haven't lost sight of the workflow integration piece. You know, that I, I feel like that's a bit of a, um, it's like a, a, it's not a well-kept secret, but it's definitely something that gets lost 
often back to our discussion about physicians as your end, as your users, uh, workflow integration is the is the whole show in a lot of ways. Um, how how has that evolved over through stealth mode and now that you're out more more public with what you're with what you're offering? So um, we've been very very fortunate to partner with you know I've had like personal help from like some of the leaders at Epic in integrating with them and partnering with them. Uh, same thing on the Cerner side. So we've been extremely fortunate to really be able to uh, approach workflow as like a first principle designer's point of view. So typically what happens is like, you know, when you're coming as an outsider, you basically as a tech company, you're coming to it, you have no exposure to the insides, you don't understand the innards and it's like hard because you, you don't know what is possible and how to go about doing it. And you haven't lived around side positions. And, you know, I think there's a lot of vocabulary you just learn from being in a system by osmosis. So in our scenario, I got to do that learning over a three-year period, four-year period by experimenting, right? Experimenting many different ways of integrating. So the way we think about it going forward is more like we have a chassis mm -hmm. by which we have many different endpoints. And we think a lot about the right endpoints for a given system. So we go, we do workflow discovery, figure out what is the right, you know, what are the right endpoints and how, what is the best way to deliver this frontline experience in a way that is like frictionless. Um, and we've had the right level of support from, you know, our EMR partners to be able to do that. Um, I think it would have been much harder if I was waking up today, decided I wanted to do integration, had no access to the chassis and had to figure this all out by myself. And in which case, what you often get is some canned number of, well, here are the three things we do for you. And then you, that's basically all you can do. Um, I want to have one more point there. You know, as a researcher, I used to say, you know, uh, as a researcher, I spent a lot of time on the algorithmic side. And when I'm with my peers who do algorithmic work, I would tell them, hey, guys, you know, you spend all this time looking at the AUC and all. Really, at the end of the day, it's experience. Because if you don't integrate in with workflow, you're, you're dead. Um, what's interesting is, though, now that I'm in the real world, what I'm actually seeing is a ton of the flip. What I'm also seeing is teams, internal teams within systems, where they know how to manipulate all the widgets to get to create some workflow that feels embedded. That's the same thing as creating a bottle with a beautiful label, right? Like it has a bottle with a beautiful label but it's supported by models that no, I like they're, they've never been calibrated. They're never, they've, they're, they've measured, never measured for efficacy. There are lots of ways in which it's very hairy to get health system data working correctly with the right metrics and all. So it's almost like you spend all your energy building the perfect looking beautiful bottle, but you never spend time on the drug. So you need the drug and you need the bottle. You need it to be easy to take. You need the right form factor, but you also need the right drug. So I'd almost say like now, having done this for a period of time, both are really important. You need the, you need the right underlying data and infrastructure to support high quality, accurate, precise inferencing. And then you need the ability to turn these in a way that activates your frontline users to make it easy to use. And you need evaluation, the ability to understand what is and isn't working so that you have the ability to tailor and tune and get adoption, engagement, and outcomes. Yeah, that's a great point. I Honestly, I would not have um, 
that's definitely an experience that I wouldn't have envisioned the, the sort of buffing the outside with, with much less, um, on the inside, all, all sizzle, no steak, uh, in the, in, on the workflow side, but, you know, it speaks to the advantages of the access points you've had and the, the patience to, to really, um, dig into your target workflows and, and your target users. Um, I'm curious, you, you referenced the EMR, um, which we know is can be fraught in, in health systems and the way people interact with it. What is the most, to the, to the outcome side, what is your most compelling outcome that you're out talking to folks about? Is it a clinical outcome? Is it a um, combination of clinical and financial? Like, what is that? Um, what does that discussion look like when you're when you're out talking to your your future customers? Yeah, so um, I think healthcare is very much a multi-stakeholder problem, right? It's like pleasing one user is hard, but in healthcare you have often four to five users. So um, we've really had to think about it pretty holistically. So we start with clinical users, so frontline, which is often around adoption, engagement, clinical outcomes like mortality, morbidity length of stay, you know, metrics that matter to them. Right. And more importantly, difficult scenarios that they know they would have had trouble with that our software helps them understand. Um, then we go to the administrators and there they care about operational metrics, right? Like all of the things around, you know, publicly reported outcomes on which they get penalties, outcomes on which they're getting uh, ranked, outcomes on which there's uh, value components on uh, contracts. So what we're showing is basically in a number of clinical areas. So in sepsis in particular, we have some of the most beautiful data, prospective data. But in several of these areas, what we're showing is basically frontline outcomes that appeal to frontline users, outcomes that appeal to administrators, which are both clinical and financial. Uh, because it's very hard to get anything done in healthcare right now if you can't show financial gains. And uh, really, honestly, it's kind of a no-brainer. Like here, the hard part is not, are there outcomes to be had? Are, you know, clinical financial? Like that's, I think people have known for the longest time. The hard part is more, um, you know, are we ready? Are we ready to take, uh, you know, to take advantage of it? And how much work is it going to be? And I think that's where there's opportunity now where, you know, with the MR in place, with the right infrastructure in place, with the right tools in place, it's actually pretty easy. And like from a physician burnout perspective, I mean, data is doubling every two years. It's actually, right. they're over, I mean, you're overloaded when, you, uh, you know, like it's really easy to miss things. It's really easy to miss things from a prior encounter, this encounter. I know so many stories from, not only from my cousin, but like, um, like, like my family stories, but like friends who lost people because, you know, if you had gone in and looked at the record and, taken the time, you would have uncovered it. But the reality is there's just too much to do. Patients are high acuity, you're burnt out. COVID hasn't helped this at all. Um, and really, so I think part of the issue here is the opportunity to, um, I think the benefits are there. It's like, are we ready? Are we ready? And can we can we experience it? Suji, making the transition over um, as a leader on the startup side after academic leadership, uh, what advice would you give to scientists, engineers, others thinking about making that making that jump? I think um, I think there's a lot that can be accomplished with great teamwork. And so, for me, what's been the most beautiful experience is discovering 
the ability to do a whole lot more by finding the right complements of people and bringing them together and putting an enabling infrastructure to do more. I say this in particular because academia is all about A plus people who compete. Academia is all about individual success. And we do incredibly hard things in academia. It's like we succeed despite our attitude. <laughs> like, right? Like, yes. Uh, it's insane to me how many hard things we accomplish with how little money and what time frames. But it's like we're succeeding despite the system. And to me, it's been the most beautiful discovery how like you can bring incredible people together, channel them in the right way and like then do impossible things, but do it actually faster, better and cheaper. So that's that's just been super cool. Fantastic. Dr. Suchi Sarya, CEO of Bayesian Health. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Joe. This was very fun.